1: Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis.
2: This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall.
0: And I'm Mike Snoonian.
2: Hello, and happy November. <laughs> we hope you all had a fabulous Halloween and that you've been taking care of yourselves. And just for the record, we are recording this in October, and we really hope everything's going okay <gasps> and that we're all hanging in there. And I know <laughs> I know, there's a lot going yes, on right now. We, it's going to be fine. We hope you're but... not
0: listening to this while, like, taking to the streets and, like, storming the White House, <laughs> know. you know? Yeah, so. oh, we hope that I know. it's
2: less
1: of a dystopia when you're listening to this than when we're mm-hmm. recording it. <laughs> right, but
2: just for the record, that is where we are right now. <laughs> so that thing that happened today, um, yeah, our thoughts are forthcoming on it. Um, <laughs> so I know there's a lot going on right now, and we're all a little sad that Halloween is over. But I always think about the Grinch, not the Grinch, Scrooge, when he says, "I will keep Christmas in my heart all the days of the year," and that's how I feel about Halloween. Mm-hmm. So we can hold on to Halloween all. Through and to the be year.
0: fair, like if Halloween is followed by the next best holiday, <laughs> uh, which is Turkey Palooza. Which is Veterans No, which is, um, which, is <laughs> which is which is Thanksgiving. Which is which is Thanksgiving. It's, I do like Thanksgiving. It's an extended, for, for a lot of us, it's an extended break. Like, I get Wednesday through Sunday off. Um, mm-hmm. And it has, like, a lot of the great things about the Christmas season without the negative things around it. It's basically, like, we're going to eat. We're going to hang out. We're going to spend time with loved ones without having to go crazy on terms of, like, gifts and, and whatnot although this year mm-hmm. probably the like getting together with loved ones is not going to happen so yeah much. not happening for
1: me <laughs> right yeah. but i
0: think it's a nice little break and a nice time to kind of like reflect back on the year and uh it's still mm-hmm. fallish enough to enjoy
1: i'm gonna eat a whole I do. pumpkin pie alone in my apartment that's my plan Aww. i'm gonna eat the whole pie by myself it's gonna that be good that's
2: good you should do that and watch Stranger Things. I don't know why that came into my head. But yeah, yeah, I'm going to watch something. That would something. be
1: a fun pairing. <laughs> I'm going to watch something. I'm going to be, I don't want to say hi, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah, use your please. imagination. <laughs> right.
0: We canceled, like, the 50-person gathering we always go to, which, thank God, because, Jeez. like, it's like 45 MAGAs in
1: us. Oh, God. Uh, <sighs>
0: yeah. Yep. But it was, we, we've invited my mom and uh, her husband to our place and we're going to host but we don't even know if in four weeks we'll be able to like have them over it's a right. tentative mm. plan worst case it'll be like the three of us just around the table watching mm-hmm. movies and eating turkey
2: which and isn't so bad nice yeah i know low-key yeah. this is the year of low-key and there are some times that i'm really grateful for mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. actually like when i don't have to put on pants oh. that aren't stretchy um <laughs> So all that to say, Halloween, I know, I miss it. But November is my second favorite month of the Mm -hmm. year, and so there's still a lot to love and be happy about, Um, or thankful for, if you will. So because this is a new month, we have a new topic, and this month we're going to be talking about grief. Yay! Yay!
0: (laughs) We clipped right Uh, there. We actually clipped
1: out. Yeah, we we got so excited that we clipped our levels. Sorry, sorry, dudes.
2: (laughs) Um so I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I think it's a universal thing that we're all likely to face at some point in our lives um, and I don't think we really talk about it that much. Um, I think it kind of makes people feel uncomfortable sometimes because they don't quite know how to respond. Um, and so as weird as it sounds, and I know we were kind of being silly like earlier, but like I'm glad that we're talking about this. And I think it's a good time of the year to talk about it.
1: Yeah. Because, um, you, you know, eat- your family sometimes dies. <laughs> sorry.
2: I'm mm-hmm. sorry. It, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, yeah. I, I mean, seriously, but that's like that's what I'm talking about. Like those are things that we face around this time of year that mm-hmm. I think People just feel either feel uncomfortable hearing other people talk about or feel uncomfortable talking about. And I think we need to talk about it. Yeah. And
1: people feel alone because any season that puts such an excessive focus on family and togetherness for folks out there who don't have that, it can feel really isolating. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a good time to discuss this and remind people that, like, hey, you you know, even if you feel really alone, you're not alone. And there's a lot of us out here who are going through the same shit. So come, come on into the warm. Uh, embrace of us and our, our voices and our mouths yes. Ew, I'm do, sorry I, s- I made it weird
0: <laughs> I do think that Laura saying sometimes your family dies is absolutely our first t-shirt quote <laughs> like that <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, there's walk a bitches, and then yeah. sometimes, sometimes your you family, family does. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's kind of representative of the, the show. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: I'll um, never forget when my daughter was like three or four, we were driving to see my mom, and I said, said to her like, you know, Ada, we love you so much. We couldn't ask her a better kid. Like, you're the best. And she like just looked at me and said, When you get older, you're going to die, so that way it can make room for new people in the world.
1: And it was the most chilling thing.
0: And I'm like, right. Whoa. Jeez, Ada.
1: Take it easy. And then I just stared
0: off in existential terror for the next 10 minutes.
2: Nothing like That's having a kid true. to do that to you. <laughs> I know, man. And sometimes like the just the look in their eyes when they say it is they're like considering, you know, and it's like mm. the healthy thing for kids to think about, but still it's like, I don't know what you're mm. really thinking. Mm-hmm. Um anyways, um, so excited to talk about grief. And even more excited about the movie that we're talking about today because it's one of my all time favorites. Um, we're talking about grief in the original Friday the thirteenth. Hooray! <laughs> Grr, 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 so, grr, 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 Guys, we're on fire. Oh, coming in hot. <laughs> oh, I said guys, though. Come on, Jim. It's fine. Okay.
1: It happens. It's, you know. It does. I just said I, dudes. I, just... I said dudes earlier, and I just I forg- oh, I say I forgave myself
2: for it. <laughs> That's I, true. Yeah. I, I now
0: find myself trying not to say guys as much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I, I still can't quite do, like, folks with an X at the end of it. I still can because it just... My brain doesn't wrap around that as a word. Yeah. So I, I tend to use or... like captain or chief or y'all. <laughs> I, I
1: like, I like saying pilgrims.
0: Pilgrims. <laughs>
2: Excellent. Yeah. Zup pilgrims. <laughs> pilgrims. <laughs> nice. Huh. So now we're going to read a short synopsis of the movie. I feel like this is one that's kind of ubiquitous in the horror world, but you never know who hasn't seen it before. Um, so here's your spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. Watch the fuck out. Spoilers spoiler M&M. coming <laughs> for you. I'm sorry. I oh don't Oh my know. God. <laughs> that's spoiler. spoilers.
0: Spoilers <laughs> for a 40 year old movie yes. coming up, folks.
2: Here we go. All right. So we begin at Camp Crystal Lake in 1958, watching from the shadows as a group of counselors sing in a circle. Two lovebirds wander off and begin to hook up by some rafts and paddles when they are killed by an unknown attacker. Q to Friday, June 13th, 1980. Annie is backpacking to her job as a cook for the about-to-be-reopened Camp Crystal Lake. After stopping to get a ride in a neighboring town, she encounters a creepy weirdo named Ralph who tells Annie she'll never get out alive because it has a death curse! It has a death curse! Death curse! I it has a death mouth. curse! It has a death curse! I'm official Crazy Ralph Stan. I'm a little bit upset
0: about calling Ralph a creepy weirdo.
2: (laughs) I mean, he's right. He lurks in pantries. Yeah, I mean,
1: (laughs) he does turn out to be correct. But if you think about it from the perspective of the
2: person he's running down. That's true. Yeah. Turns out he was right, as she is murdered in the woods before reaching the camp. Oops. (laughs) Oops. Oops. At the ca- Oops, all berries. At th- <laughs> That's one of Laura's little additions, which I love. Um, at the camp, the counselors are busy getting ready for their first day. And I must note that these counselors are all genuinely likable, including the absolutely dreamy Kevin Bacon, who is so cute in this movie.
0: He's a hottie.
2: He is, man. After one of them pretends to drown, did I just say they're all likable? They settle in and get to know one another. Later that day, Alice finds a lurking Crazy Ralph in the pantry. How long was he in there? Who again warns her that the camp is cursed and they're doomed if they stay. Doomed, I are all, all doomed. Doomed. I fucking love Crazy Ralph. All right. One by one, the campers are picked off and killed by the unseen murderer until only Alice is left. Help finally arrives in the form of Mrs. Voorhees, a friend of the camp's owners. Phew. What a nice sweater wearing lady, (laughs) ha ha. But not so fast. It turns out that Mrs. Voorhees is actually the killer. What?
0: Sorry, Casey Becker.
2: (laughs) I know. (laughs) Oh, I've got something to say about that. Um, We learned that years ago, her son Jason drowned in the lake while the counselors, who were supposed to be watching him, fornicated, and now she's bent on revenge against any and all horny teenagers. I don't know why I said fornicated so weird, and it just felt like it needed it. felt
1: right to me. Yeah. It does.
0: It's one of those words that needs emphasis. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Exactly. Like old-timey emphasis. Mm -hmm. Um, She tries to kill—sorry, Mrs. Voorhees. She tries to kill Alice, who puts up a very good fight, piling every single chair in New Jersey in front of the door right next to an open window. In the final confrontation, Alice cuts Mrs. Voorhees' head off on the shore of the lake. The next morning, real help finally arrives as Alice floats dreamily on the lake in a canoe. But not so fast again. The waterlogged body of Jason jumps out from the dark waters of the lake to scare the heck out of her and the rest of everyone in 1980. But was that real? Alice suddenly wakes up in a hospital asking about the boy in the lake, only to learn that they never found his body, which means Jason's still out there. <laughs> I'm cracking up because um, I wrote this and then Laura edited it and added a lot of what made it really fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm cracking up that you took out (laughs) Lakeified. i just... That's the word that I You didn't... Have, I, for the, you know, if you wanted
1: to swap it back to Lakeified, I'm totally fine with that. I just- no, Waterlogged <laughs> is much better. That was
2: one of those times when I was like, I know there's a word, and I just can't fucking think of what this word is. And it was Waterlogged. <laughs> and, it was like- He's- and Autocorrect didn't even autocorrect Lakeify, because I think they were just like, whatever. Yeah, yeah, just- whatever. <laughs> just big shruggy to that. You've yeah.
0: got your own thing you're going for. <laughs> but-
2: I know. They're, they're just giving me giving me some grace in these trying times yeah
1: <laughs> in these trying times. um
2: Um, so now let's move into our feelings check Um, I think this is becoming my favorite section of the episode because this is when we kind of unpack how we experience the movies and Lord knows I love to talk about feelings and I think we can all use more practice identifying our feelings um, because it sounds like something that's really easy to do but it's a lot harder than it seems I feel like we can like happy, sad, mad are the three things that we're like okay yeah fine Um, but it's a lot more complex than that and I think I just love that we spend time here because I think we could all stand to get better at doing this. So let's go around and say our first experience with this movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. Laura, would you like to begin? Sure thing. So I definitely saw bits and
1: pieces of this or possibly some of the sequels while I was growing up, but for whatever reason, it was one that I didn't really sit down and watch um, as far as like the whole franchise goes until sometime in the last few years. It was one of those like, "Eh, let's catch up on all the horror things that are considered horror classics that I haven't really Mm -hmm. gotten around to. Um, I was recently on an episode of Halloweenies. I can't. I honest to God can't remember if that was this year or not. Like that's that's <laughs> how was, I'm I was experiencing time. It. Okay, good. And mm-hmm. I, I think it was either discussing the first or second movie. Um. And I I don't really have the nostalgic love for this series that comes with seeing it when you're younger and having those formative experiences alongside a film. Um, But I do really like the first movie a lot, especially I think the twist with Mrs. Voorhees is really unusual. I know that this was pretty much templated on Halloween as far as like uh, a... a cash grab goes, you know, they were like, let's make another one of these things. But I think that the twist with Mrs. Voorhees ends up really making it special and a little bit mm-hmm. unusual. Um, so, you know, it doesn't like ring my bell as hard as it could or as it seems to for a lot of people who really um, had those formative experiences with this movie. But I really am excited to discuss it in this context, especially. And I think that the first movie, uh, the one we're talking about, is definitely... I think, psychologically the most interesting of the bunch. So I'm happy mm-hmm. to get into the meat of it with y'all. Yeah, I agree. Mike, what about
2: you?
0: Yeah, so I have a few stories about <laughs> the Friday. So I'm sorry if I get a little long-winded oh, here. No. I apologize. I'm not sorry listeners <laughs> deal with it. I'm um, not sorry. So I, I couldn't tell you my first experience watching the first Friday the 13th because I feel like all of these movies kind of jumbled together in like a mishmash of like mid to late 80s like vhs experiences where we just like would rent stuff from the video store and i feel like i watched part one way later in the game because i knew it was the one that didn't have jason in it mm. um but before i got to see any of the friday the 13th my parents kind of forbade them and he, they forbade, like, all R-rated horror. But even though I, like, rented and snuck around and watched, like, a ton of Elm Street movies and, like, Hellraiser and all the R-rated stuff, I just hadn't seen any of the Friday the 13th. Well, I have a cousin that was, like, a compulsive liar. And... <laughs> He would be like, oh, yeah, I saw all the Friday the 13th movies. And, like, Jason talks in them. And this one, he breaks into a hospital because they took his kid away. And he's, like, killing everyone going, give me back my kid. I just want my kids back. When I think of the Friday the 13th. And he has this, like, deep Charlton Heston voice. Like, so clearly my cousin's, like, a horrible, compulsive liar. (laughs) Um, But I remember, like, this is... Growing up, like, everyone knew who Freddy was. Everyone knew who Jason was. Mm-hmm. And the talk on the playground was always, like, who would win, Freddy or Jason? Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the most visceral experience I have watching this movie, there's a theater in um, Harvard Square, part of Cambridge, Mass., called the Brattle Theater. It's like a one-screen repertoire theater. It's where the Boston Underground Film Fest hosts every year. Um, Nat who is the programmer they're just an amazing job so one year like the day before Valentine Day they did a double feature of Friday the 13th and My Bloody Valentine uh, the original My Bloody Valentine and Friday the 13th led things off and it was definitely like I would describe them as like a hipster crowd um, everything was like seen through the lens of irony everyone was too cool for school mm-hmm. And they were kind of watching this, like, is a real camp and kind of laughing throughout the whole Not movie. Not the camp, it was, as in it was, Camp Crystal Lake, yeah, but as it was in like yeah. John, John Waters. Waters yes. <laughs> like, yeah, and it was frustrating because, you know, like, like Lauren and Jen, it's like the first movie is a pretty damn good, like, horror movie. Yeah, yeah
2: it's a whodunit, it too, you know? It
0: is, is influential as Halloween is, and it is... One in Happy Birthday Halloween as we record yes. this, you turned forty-two today. Um, every other slasher movie didn't really follow Halloween as much as it did Friday the Thirteenth in terms of what it go- went for. So everyone's kind of laughing and poking fun at the movie until you get to that final moment in the movie when Jason comes out of the lake and the crowd lost their shit. I mean, people were screaming people next to you, like jumped out of their seats like they were legitimately scared by that jump scare mm, really? and i'm like there you go so it still works mm-hmm. and like it wasn't the first time i had seen friday the 13th um on it, it probably wasn't even the first time i had seen it on the big screen but it was like the moment that worked it did work best for me
2: mm. yeah i think about like my first Experience with this because I grew up hearing about it on the playground as well. But I, there was always kind of this sense of Michael and Jason are too scary for me, and I didn't really want to engage with slashers that much because I think there was just such an inhuman quality to the killers, and it just really scared me. So I knew that they existed, um, but my first real experience with this was with Scream. That's when I learned who the killer was, and that's where I kind of realized that this was kind of a, a piece of, like, horror, or, like, lore, or, like, a fundamental piece of horror, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and But I still didn't see it until I was probably, I kind of, like, Laura, what you were saying, like, I was kind of checking off some boxes and there was one Friday the 13th and I was like okay well I, I love this day because it's spooky and um, I just wanted to watch it and I put it on and I think I'd probably seen parts of it because like the Bravo's 101 greatest movie moments or something scariest movie moments like I'd seen a lot of it and I kind of knew what was going to happen and I was just watching it and I just really fell in love with it and I think um, this was when I started to really kind of really be interested in kind of analyzing horror you know and I think slashers in general just have such an interesting perspective on like gender identity and so it was fascinating to me to watch this and I think it's a good movie like I think it's fun and it's like you care about the kids like there's nobody really in this movie that really bugs me you know um I it's not campy like like I just watched um Jason takes Manhattan. That movie is camp and it is fantastic. Like I had so much fun the way, but like you could still be scared by this movie, but I, I have never had a memory of being afraid of it because I think I just knew so much about it before I actually saw it. And this was like, I, I love commemorating days and I think I'm starting to realize like how stressful holidays that I have to spend with my family are. And Friday the thirteenth is not one of those days. (laughs) It's just a fun day where I can like be extra spooky and it's not like once a year like Halloween. So I love the fact that here's a day where I can just be kind of my creepy self all day and there's an excuse. And then I get to watch like this movie that I love. I agree that it's got a female killer. Like a fucking female killer. Like there's not that many of those. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love it. And, um, this was one of the first times I ever identified something as a comfort horror movie. Cause I found myself like wanting to go back to it just cause it, it just was, I just loved it. I love the. The aesthetic of being outside, you know, I just, I just really like hiking and I like the woods. So I like that that's mostly where the movie takes place. Mm-hmm. I like that there's really no parental involvement at all in the movie, but that it's believable. Like it's not like the parents aren't coming home. It's that they're they're never a factor in the story. Right. Um, And I just it's I just love it. This is in my top five of all horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep going back to it. Um, I do have a lot of love for the rest of the series or the rest of the franchise, but this is far and mm-hmm. away the one that I love. Yeah,
0: My general feeling on the franchise is it doesn't have the all-time classic like John Carpenter's Halloween or Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, but it also doesn't have the low that a lot of these franchises have. Mm-hmm. Like there's no Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D. Right. There's no um, Halloween Resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um there's no Hellraiser parts four through whatever at this point. Um it's kinda like going to like five guys burgers. Like you know what it's you're doing. It's dependable,
2: get. yeah. <laughs> and, it is yeah, it's dependable. And it's because it's so right? simple. And one of the things that I love about it, because I love the book Men, Women and Chainsaws, which her theory of slashers was based on um I'm talking about Carol J. Clover. Um, and this is mm-hmm. a na- 1980s book about gender in the modern horror movie. And she formulated her theory about slashers and Final Girl. She's kind of the one that coined the name Final Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, she formulated that on Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. And I know that this movie gets a lot of shit for kind of ripping that off. And I know, I mean, I know that was partly intentional, um, but I kind of love it. Like this is kind of where I feel that formula like click into place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where like you see the rest of the franchise, like it knows what it's doing and it's doing that. And it's really not trying to go too far outside of that, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's empty enough that it doesn't overcomplicate but it's, like, full enough that it's still interesting, I if feel that makes sense. I
1: feel like in some ways it's the most distilled essence of the elements of a slasher. Mm-hmm. It's got lack of parents. It's got the sexy teens. It's got that, I think, because I think, to me, slashers are sort of inextricable from burgeoning adulthood and mm-hmm. sexuality, and this is the movie that, like, for better or worse really goes for that it's like here's a bunch Mm -hmm. of horny teens with their tits out and their dicks out at a fucking summer camp and they're all alone and guess what that's the reason why they're gonna die and it's a force Mm -hmm. of nature and you can't escape it but all those Mm -hmm. elements come together in this way that's really um mysterious and sort of sultry and uh, yeah and and then it has this twist that you're not expecting uh, of the of it being like somebody's mom that's killing them mm-hmm. and and it then it sort of adds this depth to it that's like this bass note that makes it more than the sum of its parts which is a phrase I feel like I say a lot when I can't mm-hmm. quite define why I like something <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah so I dig it yeah I'm a big fan
0: and I think Jen what you said about the synopsis too about it being a group of mostly likable kids. Like, I think that's really Mm -hmm. true. Um, I think part of what makes Halloween work so well, part of what makes Friday the 13th work so well, especially the early movies, especially like Friday the 13th part four, the final chapter. Um, I like all the kids in these early mm-hmm. movies, like you see yourself in them, you can kind of empathize with them when you were like watching them, like I watched them when I was younger than the kids were in those movies, like I wanted to be like the Kevin Bacon mm-hmm. character, like the cool kind of got the girl, but wasn't an asshole character mm-hmm. um, and I think like probably this series that does it the best is the Elm Street series, or every movie the kids are yeah, they're my favorite still <laughs> to the remake you know. And I think that's like a lesson somewhere along the way horror movies, especially slasher movies, stopped being about likable kids and it became more about let's create a bunch of people you cannot wait to see die. And that doesn't work nearly as well to me because then you're just waiting for the next set piece and you're not really invested in any sort of story.
2: Yeah, it becomes a body count rather than like characters, uh-huh. you yeah. know, and that's one of the things I do. Like, I think there are a couple of problematic elements and or pro- pragmatic elements <laughs> with some of these characters. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, but I mean I feel like they're all like generally good people and there are people that I would probably want to hang out with, you know? Yeah, they're I not see- they're, don't- they're mm-hmm. not
1: like rank assholes, you know, like the one kid exactly. is like dressing up as a Native American and that's that's shitty and they're all, you know, and they're yeah. so they're kind of like horny teens, so that comes with its own set of issues, right? But mm-hmm. but they seem like very normal and not like caricatures like I think what starts happening in the 90s and early 2000s with a lot of like later day slashers is you know everybody it it becomes the cabin in the woods joke it's like the bimbo the nerd Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. like you know it just everybody becomes a caricature or a stock character and and these just feel like let's try to write some teens and here they are yeah
2: yeah and and that's, I feel like, leaning too far into that formula and, like, really kind of missing the point of it, you know, because you don't need to hit every beat. You don't need to include every ingredient in the recipe. Your meal can still taste good and a little different, and that's what makes dinner interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Annie, I love her. But I was watching that that's such a weird segue um I was watching her and I was thinking you know cooking for a bunch of camp counselors that's a big job yeah
1: like, for like a I teen if girl you're ready
2: for it. <laughs> I a know. girl in
1: her like late teens early 20s you know to just kind of backpack her way she's very I mean I, I think her death makes me sad in a lot of ways because I like you you so immediately connect with this character that's so vibrant and full of life and mm-hmm. um you I want to see what life has to offer for her <laughs> and she doesn't me get too. you know so
2: I know mm-hmm. I do feel really bad she's She's one of my favorites, I think, in the movie. Mm -hmm. Her and Marcy. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, What's what's interesting, too, is Alice, your final girl in here, obviously, like, the template for slasher movies became, like, your final girl lived because she was the one that wasn't promiscuous. She was the one that wasn't... But I think it's interesting to note, like... In Halloween, like Laura Strode gets yep. high, driving around with her best mm-hmm. friend, Alice is completely down with playing like Strip Monopoly. Yeah, with her smoking friend. a joint too.
1: Um, they're not like bizarre, moralizing, a you know, perfect mm-hmm. versions. They're they're mm-hmm. normal. They're just normal people who made certain choices right. and not
2: others, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where like kind of the weird stew thing I was talking about came in. It's like it's not it doesn't have to exactly line up everything. And I think sometimes the formula gets oversimplified um, because and especially with the early ones, because that's just not quite how it plays out. And as much as I think there is like a statement to be made about sexuality um, and like awakening that part of yourself, especially down the road. Um, I think a lot of it is more kind of about gender identity and like characteristics and stereotypes there, which I think is really fascinating. And we could I could go on a long um, soapbox about that. But, you know, just read men, women and Jane's All's because <laughs> it is. I love it. Um, anyways. I think maybe one of my goals in life might be to write like an updated kind of version of that. I love that for you. So we'll see. <laughs> I know. I also want to read the audiobook. So if anybody out there, because there's not an audiobook of it, and I can read some stuff. So, you know, it, just putting it out there. Just the record world.
1: a chapter and send it to them.
2: I should. I should just send it every day yes. until they just <laughs> let me do it. <laughs> Um, anyways, so that's our feelings check. Um, I think we have a lot of really positive feelings about this movie. Um, and so, and I'm glad we do because we're about to talk about some hard stuff. So, um, so we've said that our topic is grief and, I don't think it's one that's really talked about in the context of this movie very much. So I'm kind of excited to dig into this. And I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this, Mike. Um, But first, let's talk about what grief actually is. I think we all Mm -hmm. think we understand grief as sadness. And it's just and I just think there's a lot more to it and kind of some misinformation. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what grief actually is?
0: Sure. So grief in and of itself is a pretty simple definition. It's like the response that we have to loss. And typically it is the loss of a loved one, whether it's our spouse, whether it's a longtime partner, whether it's a parent, whether it's a child, whether it is just whether it's a friend or someone that just held tremendous sway or influence over our lives. It's that feeling of tremendous sadness that we have, when we come to turn coming trying to come to terms with understanding that they're no longer going to be a part of our life in like a physical way um it is typically decide is typically defined as an emotional response or at least it was in the past but i think as our understanding of the impact of grief has evolved we are also now making room for the not just the emotional response, but also social responses to grief, physical responses to grief, uh, cognitive responses to grief, our cultural responses, and also just the, the practical day-to-day implications that loss has given has has on us of the impact it has on us overall. Specifically, when it comes to these movies, I had noted what is uh, in, listed in the um, DSM is prolonged grief disorder, which is when grief not only persists for an extended period of time, but other symptoms start to show themselves as well. Like after six months time, if a person is still experiencing like tremendous disbelief or bitterness over their loss, if they're confused about their own identity, if they lose the ability to trust others, if they start to still feel stunned or have difficulty accepting and moved on or just are completely numb to any emotions and feel that all of their life is empty, then it goes from being like a very natural thing that everyone experiences to something that is really a mm. disorder. And at that point, there's a tremendous risk for... Um, being comorbid, comorbid with major depressive disorder, PTSD, as well as like a higher chance of experiencing suicidal ideation and really just having like functional disabilities. Like you lose the ability to kind of function day to day in a really kind of healthy, normal way.
2: Can I ask a question about something you said? Um, When you said sure. the confusion about one's identity, can you explain, Tell me a little bit more about that. That's the one that I
0: probably right. oh sure, absolutely. So actually, <laughs> probably
2: not. That's um, the one that I read and I was so, like, no, I'm not sure I quite understand what you're saying there. Part
0: of coping with loss is coming to terms with like and we're gonna I think we'll talk a little bit more about it when we talk about the coping models of grief, but it's coming to terms with like your new roles. Because mm. when you lose somebody, your role changes. So you are no longer a husband or a wife. You are a widow or a widower. Mm, If you lose a child, you're no longer a parent to that child, but a former parent to that child. So kind of like not being able to really come to terms with like, well, what is your new identity at this point? What are your new roles? What are your new responsibilities?
2: So along those lines, um, and I might be jumping ahead. So if I am, just let me know. Um, We're talking about grief in terms of losing a person. Um, Mm -hmm. But I hear grief said a lot like, oh, I'm grieving this, the loss of my job or I'm great or like mm-hmm. simplified, like I'm grieving Halloween being over or something like that. Is that kind of an oversimplification and kind of like just a, when we say we're starving, when we're just hungry, you know?
0: Yeah. I would say like, and obviously like you, if you lose a job, um, that it's going to bring up its own different set of problems, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I would necessarily define that as, grief per se and that's really just my opinion like Mm. another counselor might say no it's every bit as valid Mm -hmm. to do that i think that might act as like an over i think that might become like um an over exaggeration like if you yes halloween is going to be over in a week and it's very sad and i wish it was halloween all year round but i'm not i'm still going to be able to kind of get through each Each day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I will
1: push a little push back a little bit on the job thing, because I think and I don't know if this is a Western culture thing, but I think our our careers and our jobs and what we do day to day is so tied into our sense of identity. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. people ask, one of the first things someone will ask you is, what do you do for a living, right? Um, So if you lose a job or if you take a different path or whatever, your industry collapses. Say you're a a really skilled bartender and then 2020 rolls around and the pandemic hits. uh, I do Mm -hmm. think it's fair to say that you would be experiencing grief over something. Because I think grief, to me, is the loss over something fundamental to your sense of self and continuity Mm -hmm. and identity, Um, Mm -hmm. so like, I don't know, personally, like I've been debating whether or not to give up on filmmaking altogether and pursue something Mm -hmm. else because basically in order to continue doing it, I have to stay in a career that I hate in order to finance it and continue doing what I'm doing. And it's, and I, and I feel like I've been in this like slow grieving process over giving up on a dream that's been so fundamental Mm -hmm. to my identity for my entire life. Um, so you know, and that's just something I've talked to my therapist about. And she was the one that pointed out to me, sure. she's like, it sounds a little like you're grieving, you're pre grieving, mm-hmm. like this potential loss, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, So I, I would say that I think that if it's something that is really fundamental to your core sense of self, and, re- you know, relationships are obviously the, the main thing that are fu- is fundamental to most of our senses of self, because we're such social creatures. But, um, and, mm-hmm. and obviously, there's a whole host of you know, chemical things tied into loving someone. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I would argue that there are certain things that we can grieve. Maybe not Halloween, because that's going to come around next year again, but other things, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to be overly dismissive. I don't want to be overly dismissive. I think that there are things that we feel tremendous sorrow for. I think there are things that we fundamentally we have struggles like kind of coping with in terms of like, how do we adjust to this new way of living? I think that it shares a lot of the same symptoms or characteristics of grief, but I don't know if I would necessarily. And again, like I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that that this is my opinion on it. I think it Mm -hmm. might share the same characteristics of it overall, but I do think that sometimes we, Hmm. I'm really struggling to put this in a, in a way that doesn't come off come off as dismissive because I don't want to dismiss mm-hmm. when someone says, like, I may experience this tremendous life change and it's causing me a lot of grief and it's causing me a yeah. lot of sorrow right now because I don't want to say, like, well, what you're really experiencing is this because, like, I find, like, for me to do that would be, like, fundamentally dismissive and kind of hurtful to do. Does that make yeah. sense? So yeah, I think I that think... there's a lot of overlap in... um grief, and sorrow.
1: Mm. And, I, mm. and I think, yeah, I mean, you could call, you experience a loss, whatever that loss is, and then what happens is, insert word here, I think that... Um, It just becomes sort of a, uh, I think there's uh, there's a difference between how we use things semantically and how we Mm -hmm. use things clinically. Mm -hmm. So if you're Mm -hmm. arguing Mm -hmm. for a very clinical definition of grief, I think that's totally valid because you, as a provider of some sort of, whether you're a therapist or a a psychiatrist or whatever, you have to have these clinical definitions that are very black and white in order to treat someone Mm -hmm. scientifically, (laughs) you know, in in a way. Uh, So I totally hear you is all I'm saying.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think there's when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about thought processes. And there are going to be probably a couple that we can quantify and say, this is this and this is kind of only this. But for the vast majority of them, I think like I like the word comorbidity because I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of these just kind of lay with each other and they overlap and they kind of weave through. And I think um, and I didn't mean to take us down this road but I was just thinking like when I got divorced one of the biggest problems I had was saying I didn't think I was ever going to be a girlfriend again Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I thought I was a wife forever and that and and that just it it, I don't know it's just different I I like that we're kind of talking about this from just kind of the experience side and then the clinical side Mm -hmm. because I think that I don't know I'm trailing off no, and I, and
1: I think, yeah, you're talking again about identity, and I think it's interesting that you picked up on confusion about one's identity as being sort of a curious hallmark of grief, and I do think there's something to that theory. However, mm-hmm. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm just going <laughs> right. to leave it at that. Gonna, <laughs> for food for thought, yeah.
0: But I do think one of the hard things about grief is it is something that is avoided a lot of time. It's something that we we put off, yeah um, mm-hmm you know, some of the reading I've done, they talk about almost like preemptive grief when you know that someone you love is like diagnosed with a terminal illness, when you know that um, there's like a short time left, like is that when you begin the grieving process? Like are you doing that preemptively? Um, And there's also been like this model of grief that has been followed for decades and is kind of outmoded and outdated and there's real no empirical evidence that it actually works um like talking about like the kubler ross like five stages of grief Mm -hmm. model Mm. which this idea that like people experience this process through like these stages of denial anger bargaining depression and then finally acceptance and Mm -hmm. it's kind of been the go-to model for decades and the thing is there's real no scientific evidence showing that it's a real valid model it definitely discounts all the complex emotions that we're capable of as human beings with our empathy um, and with this idea that we can experience many different emotions at once. And it kind of treats the process like a bunch of check marks that you have to kind of go in and be like, okay, now today I'm denying it, and then next mm-hmm. week I'll be in anger. Where am I right now? Mm-hmm. And
1: That it it's a really... linear thing. Exactly. Right. It's not. And then those things <laughs> are isolated. Right. Like a
2: lot of times you're not going to feel just denial and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's my right. denial day.
1: Tomorrow's going to be acceptance, right? right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And
0: the thing about grief is it often comes in like crests and valleys overall.
1: like <laughs> yeah. There are um, yeah. days
0: that we might feel okay, and then there are other days where – it hits us like a ton of bricks. Um, What happens is you end up turning the process into this kind of performative exercise where you're asking yourself, well, what stage am I in right now? Am I ticking all the boxes for it? As opposed Mm -hmm. to really exploring or examining uh, where you're at. So in the past couple decades, there has been a number of criticisms along those lines. Um, From the... Journal of um, British Journal of Psych Psy- the British Journal of Psychiatry, grief and acceptance of opposite sides of the same coin, uh, an article that talked about like how there's no evidence that really demonstrates people move through the stages this way, and also that model doesn't really focus on, and this is to your point, Laura, the stressors that come with grief. So like what you were just saying, like what if I give up on Filmmaking, what if I just remove that from the equation because of the complications that go along with it, um, that this model of grief doesn't really deal with like all of the other things that would go along with it, like removing that core part of yourself, mm-hmm. the tangible things that benefit you in that way. This just looks at it as a cut and dry. This person is gone. And, you know, how do we, Where are the emotions behind it?
1: hmm Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, in my own experience, I, you know, just having lost my father a few years ago, I mean, I still feel, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'll always be grieving it because it was sort of an abrupt and upsetting thing that happened and it didn't feel right to me. Um, and the, my experience of grief was so up and down and one day you feel fine. And then the next day you're, mis- I mean, I thought, like I fully experienced just how nonlinear. Mm -hmm. and roller coastery is and it's just so i i completely as soon as that happened i was like wait that's total bullshit so it's good to hear you Mm -hmm. saying that there's a bunch of things pointing out that it's total bullshit (laughs) yeah yeah so
0: what i would look at now and we'll talk a bit more about it i think in the next show but just a quick overview of what is being emphasized more now is like the dual process model of grief. And this was developed by Margaret Strode and Henry Schutt in the nineties. And in their thesis was called the dual process model of coping with bereavement, rational and description. Um, It's this idea that there's like two modes of grief. There's like loss oriented and then like a restoration oriented grieving period. And they have a lot of oscillation back and forth between one another. There's a lot of overlap between them. So loss, the loss period or the loss focus tends to be what we typically think of when we think of like the grieving process. The focus tends to be on the person that we lost. It tends to be on the stressors the loss has caused. uh, And there often, there's a focus on the emotional stressors such as the sadness we feel, Uh, when someone we love and hold dear is no longer with us. Um, However, there's other stressors to consider when it comes to loss, financial considerations, having that support person gone from our lives, social considerations, um, things of that nature. And examples of this, when someone's looking at old photographs of them with their person they've lost, when they're imagining what the other person might think if they're experiencing a certain situation like, Oh, I wonder what, you know, my dad would have said, um, if he saw my daughter riding a horse, a horse for the first time, what would my dad think of it? Um, crying over their death. Um, it is important to note that reminiscing can be pleasurable as well as painful as well, that it's not all reminiscing is, it can also be a very good thing and a very good coping thing. Um, But instead of passing through different stages of this, that kind of focus on loss tends to kind of wax and wane over time. And like, Laura, to your and to you know, same with I lost my dad. Jeez, at this point, I've had fewer years with him than I had. You know, he's been gone longer than I've known him from when he was alive. And there were still, especially as a parent, Mm -hmm. um times where I feel like a very acute sense of loss with him not being a part of my life anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, The restorative side of this tends to be more adaptive overall. There's a focus on new coping and a new way of living one's life without that person in it anymore. There's a focus on setting new goals, having new strategies for living while still kind of remembering the impact that that person had on shaping on us. There's a focus on like the novel skills that we've developed because that person is no longer a part of our life and what we've had to do to kind of adapt in the face of that loss. It's about mastering new thought patterns and new behaviors. And it's about meeting these unknown challenges and how we face and we address these new roles and the responsibilities that kind of come with the changes that loss brings. Um, now that we're explored, we kind of like start to explore what our needs are going to be, what the new cir- circumstances are going to be for us. It can mean developing a new identity given that the loved one is now gone. And the feelings that can come up can often be a mix. Like we might feel like we're being courageous. We might have a lot of pride in... These new skills that we've learned, we might have anxiety because obviously doing new things is often really hard to do, and we don't know how we're going to be able to manage it. And there's also might be relief that, yes, it can still hurt, but we're able to get through. So the big thing is like there's an oscillation between the two molds. Um not these clear defined stages. And if you're focusing too much on one area, that can complicate the grieving process because what you're tending to do at that point is you're getting into avoidance and you're trying mm. to ignore what the loss means to you at that point. Um, and it's important to note that sometimes it's okay. Like we do need to take breaks from grief. We do need times to distract ourselves. We do need to maybe ignore it for a little bit as a way to kind of build up our own resiliency and then be able to face it again. Mm
2: -hmm. I I like that you're talking about it, kind of this dual side. And that was one of the things that I noticed early on is that like I would have these giant waves and like peaks and Mm -hmm. valleys of how I was feeling, not necessarily related to grief, but um, like just kind of coping through big changes or big things. And I almost kind of felt like it was like, pushing myself just a little bit further and then I could kind of retreat and then I would go a little bit further into feeling sad because there there's like a guilt involved in a lot of this too of like Mm -hmm. moving on and not staying like locked in like not not remembering all the time or not thinking about like the reminiscing I feel like I'm stumbling over my words it Um,
1: feels like you're abandoning that person that is gone or that thing that is gone you know I get it Mm -hmm.
2: and I imagine that I have not lost a spouse like to death but like I could imagine starting to date someone else would be a really challenging thing to do Um, I think the the biggest loss I've had in my life was when I lost a pregnancy which is kind of a different kind of thing because I never actually met like this child you know Um, but that, and so a lot of it was just like the loss of this like future that I had imagined, Mm -hmm. you know? And so then when we were trying to get pregnant again, I think there was a real, um, it was really easy to go into the avoidance place of like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to fix it. I'm just going to get pregnant again and we'll fix it and it'll be fine. Um, and, and that's an easier one, I think, because it's such like, it almost doesn't feel like a a real thing in a lot of ways, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes I hesitate to even like, I feel kind of guilty calling it grief. Cause I feel like it's not as sad as other people. And I know, like I hear That's... myself say that and I know, you know, no, but I, it's,
1: yeah, there's, I think there's a lot out there uh, of people confronting this because it's, it's a thing that doesn't get talked about a lot. And mm-hmm. I think it deserves to yeah. get, is is just as much focus as any other loss you know my i have a friend maybe i'll try and find this essay my friend katie wrote about this very subject and i'll maybe we can link it in the show notes because i think oh yeah you know, you are not not not, i don't want to you know put too much focus on this right now but i um you should feel like it's valid and it is a loss of something that's part of you so you know yeah um Never, just (laughs) never feel guilty over your, you know. And I'm saying it's just I want, you know. I'm sorry. I'll
2: stop. (laughs) I I appreciate it. In the
0: in the next show, I definitely want to talk about how to help persons that are experiencing grief. And Mm. there are definitely things I would call like grief words. Um, But one of the like, what are phrases that help versus hurt? Mm. And Mm -hmm. one of the phrases that really hurts is. This idea, well, you don't have it as bad or so, as someone else or like this other person has it worse than you do because it completely invalidates what you feel like you experience a tremendous loss. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with persons that have lost their children and you're grieving two things like you are grieving the person that you knew, the person that you And I know it's a little bit different in this case, but you're grieving the person you knew. You're also grieving for a future that never got to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is in some ways maybe the hardest thing.
2: Yeah. Like I – what I always came back to was I never found out if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And I just Mm -hmm. was really kind of sad to not have that. And I think like – when we talk about people that have died after a long illness, I think this is kind of where we can kind of see this come up sometimes too. Like it, it, like, I think the phrase like, well, it's kind of a relief that they're not suffering anymore or something like that. I think that's kind of a way to pad it, you know? And it just, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to, we don't know how to talk about this with each other, you right. know? Um,
0: and I, I think on those lines too, and I think we talk about the, experience of grief in Friday the 13th, there's like grief and guilt almost tie yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. together. So. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, I think, I think they do in general speaking, I think that it's hard to separate the two and then it definitely happens in this movie. And I, I'm, I'm interested to talk about it.
2: I am too. And, uh, maybe that's a good segue into, um, let's talk about how we see grief represented in this movie. And, uh, this movie that I just love so much, it makes me feel so warm and fuzzy. It feels like I'm kind of glad we're kind of dipping into this with a movie that really is kind of a comfort movie for me too. Whew. Okay. Um, so now let's talk about how we see grief represented in this movie. And Mike, I kind of think maybe I kind of want to let you kind of lead this because this is kind of like your baby theory, you know?
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, If that's okay with you. (laughs) I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to like monopolize all the time. But I can definitely.
2: <laughs> Mike just wants uh, to monopolize get... all the time. Yeah,
0: monopolize so. all the time.
1: <laughs> I say, if you got Lovely. something to say, just sing it to the rafters. There's okay. other movies that I'll have way more to say about. So mm-hmm. please. Oh yeah,
2: go for it. Also, okay. like I'm kind of like I could. I see a couple of things, but I think you're the one who has a lot of this like fully thought out, mm-hmm. which I'm excited to hear about.
0: So I try to imagine what it would be like for Pamela Voorhees in terms of like the pain that she's felt and by the way I do think that like the Friday the 13th fan films by Womp Stomp Films um Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow they are exploring that relationship between really? like Pamela and Jason in a really interesting way I keep meaning and to I can't watch wait those to see where they go they're yet really good really um and they're free on youtube <gasps> nice. so, so pamela Voorhees is a single mom in the 1950s at a time where there's going to be tremendous stigma around being a single mom Uh, And that's going to be unbearable, like the way you're going to be looked at, the way you're going to be ostracized from the community, the way that you're not going to fit in. It's a period of time where young women are still, and I put in here in quotes, like sent to live with their aunt if they were single, sexually active and accidentally became pregnant. Mm -hmm. Like they were sent away because of the shame um, that that would have caused their families at that point.
2: Apparently, Jack Nicholson, that happened to him. Like his, he found out. After they were both dead, that his mom mm. was actually his grandmother, and that his sister was actually his mom, and I just it blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like that a madman Mad plot like that. I think, yeah, exa- yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so right. so on top of that, so she doesn't give birth to Jack Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> she gives birth. You know, it's Jenny. <laughs> yes, it's her son is born with a number of developmental and intellectual disabilities. He's born with these facial deformities that made him an immediate outcast during this time period. And there's no social safety net. There are no special services. There's no special education. There's nothing for Pamela Voorhees that's going to provide her and Jason anything that would represent something that will be a normal life for her boy. Mm -hmm. so you have a single mom no dad in the picture you have a son who is going to require a tremendous amount of special attention and no way to help kind of get him caught up at all so what does she do she works as a cook at a camp for children it's a suburban summer recreational overnight camp which means children of privilege are going to be attending this camp Mm -hmm. you're going to be if not wealthy at least upper middle class during this time the 1950s ago like your parents are sending you there to have fun for the summer the impression i always got isn't that like jason is one of the campers there jason's mom is a cook there she has no one that can watch him during the day she can't afford a babysitter so she has to bring her son with her to work. And I can imagine a conversation with her boss that is not a warm and fuzzy and friendly conversation about having to drag whatever name he wants to call her cut child and the shame that would go along with that. Okay, mm-hmm. um, So he goes to work with mom and I'm sure that he did get to interact With the campers and the counselors, but I'm sure he was also excluded from a lot of activities. The scene in Freddy versus Jason where he's getting like picked on by all the kids, I'm sure that was part of Mm -hmm. his day to day reality.
2: It makes me Um, so sad.
0: (laughs) Ultimately, you know, I think she sleeps there because like it's an overnight camp, so she probably stays Mm -hmm. there. Ultimately, whose responsibility was it? To watch Jason. Was it really the counselor's responsibility? Because if he's not officially part of the camp. He's probably. They probably think well it's her problem. She has to deal with it. Mm -hmm. We have these other kids that we have to deal with right now. Mm -hmm. And I would say that like Pamela's. Grief that transforms into rage over time. Is because A. This guilt over not watching over Jason. And then having him drown. And then taking that rage and directing it instead of inward outward at the counselors who she feels were now responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder, is there a part of her that feels this tiny bit of relief Mm. that this child that like would have needed so much attention and would not have received any of the help that he really needed was there a bit of relief that she's free of this burden? Mm-hmm. And if there is that relief, what does that say about her? How do you cope with that part of you? And where do you channel that at that point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, one thing that I found interesting is how she sort of internalizes Jason's voice. It's almost mm-hmm. a little flavor of dissociative identity disorder where she's like, mm-hmm. kill, kill her, mommy, kill her. You know, mm-hmm. she's sort of speaking in this weird baby Jason voice. And it, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that there's, it's a really interesting theory for starters. And I, mm-hmm. I could see that kind of mix of guilt and grief and frustration being mm-hmm. sublimated into that murderous rage that she dissociates from by pretending that, or or by part of her mind telling her to pretend that she is mm-hmm. Jason, she is the yeah. the agent of, and i think that's what sets the stage for the later films and jason himself being the mm-hmm. killer and kind of it has a supernatural vibe but i think there's a, yeah. a very interesting psychological truth buried in that idea mm-hmm. and i do i also I, I really like this idea of um it's just popped into my head that like a lot of slasher films especially this one have this idea of like revenge on the normies For being marginalized, because we were earlier we were talking about how the campers are all really likable and just like super normal. And Mm -hmm. and that's the thing, is like somebody like Jason and Jason's mother never had that chance at normalcy. And that's why like it's not so much a morality over sex that is is inspiring the revenge. It's just like you are so young and you're so carefree. You're so hot and you're just off and able to have a good time. I was never Mm -hmm. able to have a good time. My son was never had a Mm chance. He never had a prayer of ever having a good time. Instead, he just died and I couldn't be there for him because I was working in the kitchens or whatever. And I can just really I can vibe with that rage, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. and I think it's a it's a it's a thing. And and it's also like I, I mean, a lot of people, you know, there's this idea of like slashers being just revenge on the on these like white normal well-to-do youths, you know, and I think there's a lot of that buried
2: in here. Well, and I think even if it was explicitly said Jason is under your counselor's care, I still think there would be guilt there. Like of course. I I can't believe I left my kids, my kid with these kids, mm-hmm. you know. And I think um like I'm like catching on to the word rage that you have in these notes and that you said um Because that's something that we've taught I've been talking about in therapy. I mean just understanding that rage is different than anger and that with rage Uh there's like a lot of times there's like a loss of control there, which I think we kind of see. Um, but we my therapist gave me this sheet a long time ago and I fucking love it. And it's got like base emotions in the middle, and then it's got an impaired version of that and then a healthy expression mm-hmm. of that. And so rage, I, I wish I had it in front of me cause I'm worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing. But I think that rage is like the impaired version of fear and it's just easier for us to express it with rage. Cause I think a lot of times that's kind of like a blind, like tied to action thing. Mm-hmm. Which I think we can kind of see her go into and I could imagine it would be terrifying to have to confront the truth of this guilt that you feel, you know, and I think guilt probably mm-hmm. has its own impairment. I, I wish I'm kicking myself for not having the sheet in front of me, but
0: I like to think of the anger iceberg, too. I don't know if that's something that's anyone ever who's, heard about that. I The anger iceberg is basically on the surface you have like, well, I'm angry. Uh-huh underneath like anger it's in and of itself it's the way i was trained and i kind of love this like my my uh my advisor in like the uh, dr freeberg said anger in and of itself is not really an emotion like anger in itself is usually sadness and fear sadness because you're not being mm-hmm. understood and fear because you're not understood like no one's ever going to understand mm-hmm. me but underneath anger are all these underlying emotions sadness disappointment loneliness feeling overwhelmed Mm -hmm. embarrassed hurt helpless anxious stress threatened contemptuous Mm -hmm. jealous all of these things live under the surface and make up anger to some degree you and you don't maybe experience all two dozen of those things but there might be like two three or four things you feel Mm -hmm. that when you say i'm angry what you're really saying is like i'm i'm afraid you're never going to understand me i'm embarrassed because of this situation and i feel helpless right now because i don't know how to change Mm. it and all of those things combine into actually making you Mm -hmm. angry and then not ever being able to control that anger then gets channeled into that rage an unhealthy expression Mm -hmm. of anger
2: there's, um, I don't know if Mike, you ever watched the Pajanimals when Ada was younger. Um, it's a Jim Henson show. It's, it, it's mm-hmm. kind of like Muppet Babies. It's kind of akin to that, and it's amazing. I love it so much. And if anybody out there has watched Pajanimals with their kids, now it's, it's a school. It's a show for preschoolers, so like I don't watch it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but sure, sure. A- <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> sure. But sometimes, like, Corey and I would find each Like I, I found myself talking about which pajama I was with, like, my friends that don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you don't know what I'm talking about. But they have this song called I'm Mad, and Cal Bella is singing I'm Mad, I'm Mad, I'm Really, Really Mad. But maybe I'm really just sad. Aww. And then it's just, I'm sad, I'm sad. It's it's, But it's mm-hmm. the sweet moment of like, yeah, there's something underneath that that's fueling it. And I think anger is just so much easier, like that top level of the iceberg. And when mm-hmm. I think about my sheet, anger is at the top of it. And I think it's for the same kind of thinking reason. It's just so much easier for us to get mad. And that's why we lash out a lot mm-hmm. of times because... It's easier than like Miss Voorhees saying like that this this is my reality now and that maybe I'm partially to blame for this or that I I do feel relief. Maybe she's just terrified at at, like admitting that relief to herself. Um, And so that's the anger. Now, I also want to say like that none of that excuses murdering and that they're (laughs) for the record. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, And I kind of want to like maybe move into what she does with that anger, Um, because I think like I, I really love how we're talking about this. And I, I think you're right. Like there's a lot more to this, but like lots of people lose their children and they don't murder. They don't become serial killers. Right. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that, too. And and that was the, and that was one question I had was and I
1: mean, this isn't necessarily for you, Mike. It's somewhat. um you know what's what's the word for when a question is r- rhetorical, rhetorical. Uh, yeah it's somewhat rhetorical mm-hmm. but also like can grief predicate psychosis because she seems like she yeah. has had a psychotic break and Mm -hmm. That's a little odd to me because usually, I mean, like if you're looking at it very literally, usually psychotic breaks happen when people are younger. if if dissociative identity disorder is a super um, controversial diagnosis, but it's usually associated with early childhood trauma. This is like a a thing Mm -hmm. that we see again and again in horror is like something so bad happens to you and it could happen at any time in your life that you just snap. And um, I that seems to be what they were going for a little bit with this character that her grief just caused her to dissociate and totally start killing people. And I don't know if that's literally realistic, but I do think it functions as a really nice metaphor for grief. But if we're looking at Mm -hmm. it literally, (laughs) like, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I'm actually, as you're saying that I'm literally looking up the quote from the truck driver. Cause it's not just murder. Like she,
2: she poisons the water is against,
0: right. She's against any attempt. So here's the quote. Did Christy ever tell you about the kids murdered in 58? Well, that is. <laughs> boy drowning in boy drowning in 57. Bunch of fires. Nobody knows who did any of it. In 62, they was going to open up. The water was bad. Christy will be just like the rest of the folks. So basically, like, any attempt to reopen this camp, like, she has yeah. sabotaged it.
2: I just have to time. say, Mike, you're an American so, original. So. <laughs> What's the thing right. she says to the that's truck. they are an American <laughs> original. Oh, and he goes, that's right, American original. Yeah. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Okay, thanks, thanks. 1980. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, there it is. Like four more <laughs> lines. I do not remember that. Um, but basically, he you know, any of attempts to reopen this camp, like, see is yeah. sabotage and she's done. And now that, like, okay, the, it's actually going to happen, like, that is the final yep. break for her. Yeah. Where it's now becomes a rampage, a murder. Yeah, kind and of I like think...
2: a
1: spree killing, almost. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And, like, we, we said in the synopsis, like, Fornicating teenagers Like she is angry Specifically at kids Who are about to get down But it's like She just does not want This camp to exist anymore And anyone who tries To make that happen Falls into her rage um, Mm -hmm. Or her murderousness Although like the opening kill Is from 1958 And I think that's meant To be the year after Is that right?
1: So I mean I
2: think that's Like when I was watching it This time The thing that really Stood out to me was the scene when I think it's Ned pretends to drown and everybody is just like on it and like they're jumping in the water Mm -hmm. and I imagine because we see her what what we we see from her point of view, she's watching this whole thing happen, and I just imagine how heartbreaking that would have been for me as a child whose parents drowned because the counselors didn't care mm-hmm. to watch like what might have been or like what mm-hmm. could have happened if if it were a different yeah. set, you know and, and and so I was thinking, does this trigger it? but it doesn't because she killed right. these teenagers the very next year. you know
1: and, and I think there there there's also this sense of confusion coming from her like she thinks Mm -hmm. when she's talking to um alice at the end she sort Mm -hmm. of has this moment where she's talking to her as alice and then you see something change in her eyes and she's like you did it you let him drown you know like she is reliving Mm -hmm. that moment again and again Mm -hmm. and she sees any camper or counselor in this place as one of the original guilty parties
0: right yeah she's Mm -hmm. never moved past
2: 1957 Mm -hmm. yeah and so talking about PTSD recently would that be I guess maybe there could be an element of that as mm-hmm. well that this is a trauma for oh, sure absolutely yeah um it, it does make me feel really sad for her mm-hmm.
1: um yeah I. that's what I like about this movie is that it it's like a lot of these slashers again you know we were discussing this in the within the context of scream uh, that there these are really human killers this is a really human killer you know and I think that it yeah. gives it more pathos for me than this faceless entity um although faceless entities can be a lot more fun <laughs> but I think right, there's right. something about this that has a little more depth to it for me
2: yeah well and I think I've said often that Jason is my favorite of like the Michael Freddy Jasons um <clears throat> he's my favorite killer I think I even like him better than Ghostface because there's just this iconic look to him that I think for some reason just really resonates with me I don't know if it's like the the symmetry of the hockey mask or something I just really dig it but I also think he is the one if we're looking at Jason Michael and Freddie where his backstory doesn't bother me really in any kind of way like there's no red flag that pops up that like yeah well michael killed his sister like that's not that's and just kind of the way it plays out in the movie has always kind of bothered me a little Mm -hmm. bit and then freddie is like a child murdering (laughs) pedophile Yeah, he's a literal pedophile that murders kids that
1: gets burned to death (laughs) right what
0: about i mean what about leatherface
1: Mm, Mm. leatherface well, you don't really know what their deal is. I mean, well, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of the um the sequels because I just haven't bothered. So, But I've watched yeah. the original so many times that he, they, I mean, at least in that film, they're left somewhat inscrutable that they're just this mm-hmm. family of murderers out in the country yeah. and there's no rhyme or reason to it.
2: I think he probably has a lot to do, like a lot in common with Jason. Like he, right. it, like, I feel like there's a lot of abuse in that family that Mm -hmm. he's grown up in and like, it's interesting. And I know this is a different movie and I don't want to go too far down into this, but like seeing him wear these different costumes and like the Mm -hmm. different faces, I think is so interesting. And I think really kind of reveals what he sees his place in that family as, you know, the
1: caretaker and the, the butcher and all these other things. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I just think as even his introduction, like what's happened is these. People he doesn't know have come into his home, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think very much like Leatherface is meant to be seen as a person with autism. Is, is uh-huh. how interesting. I would yeah, look mm-hmm. at Leatherface. So you have like someone who's probably very in to your point about him like wearing different costumes. Depending on the role he's playing, like, he has a very regimented, like, okay, when I'm cooking, this is the what I wear. When I'm serving, this is what I wear. There's a yeah. very, mm-hmm. um, but Leatherface, I always thought it was really tragic because, like, he's not really aware of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. At that point, mm-hmm. and you see that opening thing, it's part of the greatest introduction of any. I know, film, I love it so much. Movie. I think it chills oh. just God. thinking
1: about it the way that that, mm-hmm. that whole thing is shot, and he just mm-hmm. comes out of that horrible red door, mm-hmm. you know, doorway. And like, it's oh, I love it mm-hmm. so much. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but what you see is like someone who's very scared because someone has come into his home mm-hmm. that he that is unfamiliar and a stranger, and how frightening that would be.
2: You could look at that with Pamela Voorhees and say, Mm -hmm. like, there is a way she could probably tell herself that she is protecting campers. Now, I'm not saying that's what she's actually doing, but that these campers are coming in or these counselors are coming in and they're going to be placed in charge of kids that they're not going to protect and that Mm -hmm. she is trying to right this wrong. And again, I'm not saying this. I'm saying I think she could convince herself of that kind of thinking to justify what she does.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, she's she's known in the community because as Steve Christie recognizes, oh, it's you.
2: Right, right. Like,
0: and everyone knows who she is. So mm-hmm. she's been a fixture in that community. And I just wonder how views of her changed over. Like once Jason was no longer part of her life, how views of her changed? Like yeah. was she still seen with that same stigma or was there maybe more pity toward, for her because of what she Experienced,
2: Yeah. And I wonder what she's like on a day to day basis that does not have anything to do with this camp. Like, I wonder how functioning she is throughout the rest of the year. And it's just like these particular events that trigger her, or like her, her son's birthday would be a major trigger, you know, mm-hmm. um, And all this to say, like, I have been thinking recently, I love really parsing this out and really kind of trying to understand her thought process, but I love that the movie doesn't really make us do that, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, we are doing this because we choose to, Mm -hmm. and I say that as somebody who's really just fucking over being asked to understand the bad guys all the time, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think... you know, there there's gonna be a time where I think I'm more willing to do that, but right now I just feel so exhausted with it. And I love and I say that I don't wanna I don't wanna like criticize what we're doing because we're choosing to do this for a different reason, but I love that the movie exists without us having to do that. You know.
1: And, and I think it's a trope of modern cinema and like the, you know, modern t- sort of event television that we have mm-hmm. now with the HBOs and yada yada, that everything It has to be explained to you to death, you know, and I, I, you know, sometimes that works and sometimes it does not. And it kind of gets old, you know, where you have like, oh, we've got a villain with this. You know, insert reason here, and we're going to have a flashback of their childhood, and we're going to, you know, we're going to tie everything into a little bow for you. Um, I am a fan of ambiguity and leaving things open to interpretation just because I think it allows for a richer experience than just being, you know, it leaves you thinking about it versus being like, okay, well, I'm done with
2: this story close the book, never think about it again. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think there's a balance there. Because the first time I think that it kind of sparked this line of thinking was when I was talking about the book Insomnia, um, which I have a lot lot of more thoughts about it. But there's a character who is an abuser, and then his wife who he abused in that book. And he is so fully developed, and he is so humanized. And I don't really have a problem with that. The problem I have is that she isn't. Yeah. And that all of the sympathy is going towards him. That and is so a thing. when that is a right
1: and I've gotten into so many arguments with people who just can't see why that's a problem and they'll be like well I don't see the problem with having a movie about an unlikable character it's like it's not about that it's the fact that they the the director the author the writer whoever has given so much energy into making you understand this tragic flawed villain type of character and it's almost always some kind of vaguely abusive dude (laughs) I'm thinking Uh of the movie Paris Texas right now which I just had like Hmm. a total meltdown over a few weeks ago uh, because it's. (laughs) like lauded by every cinema nerd in the world and I was just like Mm -hmm. no this character is an abusive piece of shit and again they give all the sympathy and focus to him and not enough to the wife that was you know Mm -hmm. and that's that's like a it's a whole trope that really really exists in a lot of very highly praised works of cinema and literature and it's oh sorry I got triggered
2: again. Sorry. Yeah. And I think like, I don't think we necessarily see that in Friday the 13th. And I'm really grateful for that. Mm -hmm. I think there's enough there that we can really pity Pamela Voorhees. But also like we, these kids are presented as really likable, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would necessarily call this a feminist movie, but, (laughs) but it's
1: interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but I don't think it's like I don't feel like it's misogynist, you know, Mm -hmm. like I feel like all of the characters are really presented as human beings, you know, which is really kind of what I think of when I think of feminism. Like, are you just being fair to everyone? Is everyone being presented as a whole character? Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think this movie does this that mostly very well.
0: I think it's a movie that knows its market very well yeah um like I think the three of us have put more thought into the motivations (laughs) and for
1: sure (laughs) and I think that's
0: by the way that's not always a sign of a bad movie it means that there's enough meat in there that you want to explore it but I think that like you know Sean Cunningham the director and Victor Miller the writer very much knew like who is this movie for it is for like 17 18 19 year old teenagers that want to see a movie on a Friday night, that they can take a date to, that their date's going to like cuddle up next to them and grab onto them during the scary bits. And mm-hmm. they're going to have a good time and they're going to tell their friends about it. And they wanted to see themselves up there on screen. Like the kids that you see, and I think it was uh, Erwin Yablis, the producer of Halloween said everybody at some point has either been a babysitter or has been babysat by somebody. And the mm-hmm. beauty of Halloween is that you're focusing on, you're, you're taking horror out of these, like, gothic structures, and you're, and it's focused on adult issues and adult problems, and you're putting them on the teenagers, and you you saw yourself in um, Lori Strode and Annie. You saw yourself in Bob and even though they might have not been like the most fully developed characters in the whole world, there was enough in there. And I think you saw mm-hmm. your, as a kid growing up, you maybe like were a camp counselor or something you kind of at least knew what it was. So you could see yourself in all of these kids. You saw yourself in Alice and Annie and everybody mm-hmm. else in the movie. And that to me, like that is part of the fear. That is like that could totally. be me.
1: It could yeah. be me and on some level as a as a normie privileged person, perhaps I deserve it. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's yeah. just a whole other sidebar that I could go <laughs> go on, but I won't because I did not prepare those thoughts. Well, and I also think there's an element of that's part that speaks to how great of a movie this is because I'm thinking of a movie specifically that we talked about recently where we really started to analyze and certain elements started to fall apart, mm-hmm. you know. Um and and it didn't hold up to scrutiny. And I think here, like the more we dig into it, I think the more there is, we find we could dig in. And I think that's, but you could totally just enjoy this on a date night, you know, or mm-hmm. just like it, just a fun comfort movie I want to put on while I'm folding laundry. And I think that really speaks to the strength of this movie is that there is uh, to to put go back to the iceberg me- metaphor. I think there is a lot under the surface here that doesn't necessarily um, always show itself, but that is really fascinating to dig into. Totally. Um. So uh, on that note, we're going to talk a little bit about treatment right now, unless there's anything else we wanted to mention. Um. So, Mike, I know you had some thoughts about treatment for this mm-hmm. specific kind of grief.
0: So I brought up like a very specific exercise for this right here. And it's something that I would call the grieving tree. Um, Does
2: it involve killing a bunch of counselors?
0: You could, you could by the way. <laughs> yeah, okay. might be some Am I skipping
2: ahead? Too. Am I skipping ahead?
1: Skipping <laughs> Spoilers. ahead. Spoilers. <laughs>
0: um, so the, this is, I, the grieving, it's very simple. It's a creative exercise in therapy where... You need a few supplies, like a sketch pad, some stuff to draw with or sketch with, and then some like construction paper, red, green, and yellow. And what you're going to do first is you're going to take your sketch pad and just draw out a tree. You're then going to use like this construction paper to cut out leaves. Um, Red leaves, green leaves, yellow leaves. And basically the colors are going to represent the kinds of emotions that Um, come up so green are kind of good warm thoughts you want to focus on red is like the more problematic or hurtful thoughts and yellow is kind of like an intermix of those and what you're doing is you're writing out as many many memories thoughts or feelings about the person that you have lost and putting them on the leaves on the color that they belong to And if it's a mix of emotions, you're putting it on that yellow one. If it's something that's a hurtful emotion, you're putting it on the red one. If it's a warm thought that you might want to focus on and brings up good memories for you, you're putting it on the green leaf. Once you are done writing everything out and placing on your leaves, you're then arranging your leaves on the tree. And as a counselor... I look for a few different things at that point. Number one, you look for the actual things they wrote, the actual memories they wrote. Um, also, look at the placement of where the leaves go. Are all the greens together? Are all the yellows together? Are all the reds together? Or are they, you know, kind of separated from one another when you're placing them? Or is there an overlap between them overall? Are they kind of all mixed in with one another? Are the red ones all placed off of the tree and on the ground very much like what you might see you know in the autumn when leaves turn color overall and it kind of gives a window into how the person is experiencing those emotions what sort of overlap there might be between them overall and where they might be kind of in the process where they are right now similar to if I do like a collage I often will do like a past, present, future collage with clients where we just get a stack of old magazines and you are cutting out pictures and kind of putting them on different sheets. And mm-hmm. you can often see like on some things there's a lot of overlap in the pictures and things touch. And then in others, there's very clear boundaries that are drawn between different entities overall. And that space in between them is often really fascinating Mm -hmm. Um, The idea behind The Grieving Tree is it allows the person the time, the space, and the energy to really sit there and really reflect on the different emotions. The idea is to really take your time and not just go willy-nilly putting things on the leaves. Like It's not something you would even think about finishing maybe in one session, it might be a multi-session process for a person. But what you're doing is you're giving someone the space to work through all of the difficult emotions that can come up when it comes to grieving. And then giving them this, the idea of allowing them now to, to talk about why different, and also I shouldn't say just some emotions, it could be memory. So for example, mm-hmm you might have someone that puts their loved one's favorite song on a leaf or mm. whatever that, and I've had a client who they can no say they can no longer listen to music because their son always listened to music. And he was oh, always like, when he moved, mm. he was dancing and they cannot um, think about listening to music now because it's too painful for them.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
0: But But at the same time, the interactions that 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 loved one had with their children goes on a different color leaf at that point. Because Mm. they see reflections of their son in their grandchildren. And that brings them comfort and brings them warmth. So it could be anything. It could be a memory of like... We went on family vacation together. We went camping one time, and it was like the best vacation we ever had. That could go mm-hmm. somewhere. And then giving them the space to talk about it, but then also talking with them about why they've arranged it the way they did and what yeah. is that? what that's making them feel. Does that make sense?
2: It does, and I'm loving this idea. Um I was thinking it reminded me a lot of something that I had done called a trauma egg which I think mm-hmm. I've talked about a little mm-hmm. bit but it involved drawing scenes and there's like a there there's a like a methodical nature that I think is very soothing and I think that also gets your body involved like the mm-hmm. thing that I caught first was just cutting the leaves out of construction paper and I think that's like could be seen as a warm up to mm-hmm. trying to ease your way into that and I think is it's like externalizing and kind of making real something. And for me, when I'm talking about like traumatic scenes, it's like, oh, this did happen. But here I feel like it would be like honoring a memory or like, like commemorating it kind Mm -hmm. of in a way because you're like making it real and you're sharing it with someone else. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love the idea of this. I mean, to me, it seems like the real purpose of this
1: is to physically manifest something that can feel really overwhelming to get Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. and to start analyzing and uh, what what tools like this or like the trauma egg or, or other things are doing my when I first started therapy my therapist would have me draw scenarios that I was describing and like place a little Illustration of myself in the scenario, and then she would like talk me through it, and it sort of helped me start to understand my, especially my family dynamics at the time because I was a lot, I was still in college, I was a lot younger, um, so I'm kind of asking slash assuming that that's kind of what's going on here with with exercises like this. It's to give you 100%. context.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm a big fan of seeing things physically and tangibly in front of us Mm -hmm. overall because I think sometimes emotions are this intangible thing that like you know what they are but they're hard to define Mm -hmm. and they're hard to visualize and conceptualize where having that memory having that thought having that emotion put in front of you gives you a way it gives you more context and then seeing how it's represented on the tree gives I think what it's sometimes subconscious like a physical representation of what's going on inside of us and Mm -hmm. it can lead to like a much richer understanding of where a person is in the process when it comes to grieving.
2: Absolutely what i think i love well i love a lot about it but i like the the use of yellow for the complicated like mm-hmm. maybe i'm not quite ready to decide if this is a, a memory because i was thinking i would write these on a list on a piece of paper and then i would try and that i think that just speaks to my type a like always wanting mm-hmm. to be right about things but like i like that there's the room To have that, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I know that it exists, and maybe down the road we will do this. And like I, I I also like like that you're acknowledging that this is not a one one session thing. Because like my trauma, I've been working on that thing for like over a year now, and Mm -hmm. we're still on the bottom third. And like I think it, it takes a while to process these things, and it's not like. I I'm, I'm speaking as someone who's imagining myself doing this not from experience so just wanted to say that but like I imagine myself maybe putting one or two leaves on a tree one day or writing down some stuff on some leaves and then deciding to place them later and then maybe we'll talk about that a little bit and I think I think it's it just is a really creative cool way to kind of work through you know making right. what and we've said it I probably shouldn't repeat it but like making the feelings inside something that we can describe you know and that's where the processing for me really comes in is trying to find a word for it Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. that kind of moves it into the space moves it out of the feeling part of my brain and into the understanding part of it so so that that's lovely i also like you know if mrs Voorhees like it's a camp and there's lots of trees in that camp so i think i I would be
0: I would be so interested to see what goes on her grieving tree. I would too. Like what are, you know, the reds, obviously the red would be drowning. Mm -hmm. Um, The, you know, reds would be like the difficulty it had in just trying to raise someone like that under those circumstances, Mm -hmm. the shame one might feel and not being able to protect their son or the guilt that one might feel. But what would the greens look like?
1: We don't know. And that's right. the thing we don't yeah. we don't really get any sense of what the positive memories were in their life because we're so focused on mm-hmm.
2: the killings, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, and surely there were, you mm-hmm. know. Hmm. Now I'm I'm finding myself not wanting to say, "Oh, I wish we did see more of that," because it kind of goes against what we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier. But it is interesting. Like we don't we don't know, you know? Yeah,
1: and that's why you get fan films and and s- right. sequels mm-hmm. and squequels. Right. <laughs> there are.
0: Um... <laughs> It's, neat. and again, like, not to harp, because it's, it's out of the context of this movie, but, like, Never Hike Alone, the hiker in the movie, like, stumbles upon Camp Crystal Lake, and he stumbles upon where Jason lives, but he lives in one of the cabins, and there are, like, postcards from his mother with, like, really nice, sweet written messages Aww. on them, and, like, photographs there, and... Um, you know, it gives you, there's a scene in the new one, Never Hike in the Snow, where it starts off with what would be like a top five all-time kill in the Friday the 13th series. Like if it was part of the actual canonical series, it would be right up there with like the kill and Jason X getting like the head smashed mm-hmm. or like the the, sleeping, the bag. Um, sleeping bag scene. It's that good. But then it immediately, mm-hmm. the next scene immediately transitions to the police officer having to tell the mother, Oh, your son is missing. Um, and you live with that scene for a good like ten minutes is or five minutes of the film is just like the mother's reaction to that. And then it flashes back to that day with the mom saying goodbye to the son and be safe. And it's things you never see in a Friday the thirteenth movie. So and then there's like a scene with Jason and his in imagining his mother and seeing like how that relationship plays out. And there's Mm -hmm. all this interplay that, like, is exploring the family dynamic in a way that, like, again, you know, Sean Cunningham was like, let's just knock off Halloween and make a few bucks, you know? Mm
2: Mm-hmm. So since we're talking about other ways that we kind of see this um, in different elements, let's um, skip to um, some of the other movies we see this kind of response to grief represented in. And one of the big ones I was thinking about while we're talking about this is the newer episode or the newer season of American Horror Story. And I think that they do a very poor job of this. Because I don't know if you've seen the slasher season, but they it it is a very like um, Friday the 13th inspired season. And I think they try to really explore this like the mother working and the kids being there. And I think they I don't think they do it very well, but it is worth we kind of enjoyed it, you know. That show, every
1: time I've—I mean, I've sort of stopped watching it, but that was, like, my feeling Mm -hmm. every time I watched any season beyond the second or third season. It's like, oh, you almost had something here, and then you blew Mm -hmm. it. You blew it real hard.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they need to stop giving Ryan Murphy television
1: projects. I know. There's so many talented people out there, and then these same mm -hmm. motherfuckers just get to fucking churn shit
2: give him a couple of years off like he's fine for now and then let no. him like work over what he wants to do and like fully form it yeah where are um, the
1: editors where are the fucking editors and people saying no to bad ideas god damn it <laughs> anyway, I know sorry. it
2: reminds me of when Tyra Banks is a total sidebar but like towards the end of America's Next Top Model like she was just surrounding herself by people telling her she's fabulous all the time and she just mm-hmm. completely lost touch with like what made America's Next Top Model great to begin <laughs> I can't believe I'm defending that show but anyways um, but I I do, I think it's an interesting like kind of exploration seeing it done wrong you know mm-hmm. um i think i think we see this in scream one two and three we see like this response to grief turn murderous like through various characters and i don't necessarily really want to spoil that but like we see it like most of the character or the characters that turn out to be killers are out for revenge for some kind of loss that they have suffered mm-hmm. and I think it's it's an, a really interesting kind of follow through on this um, with a little more humanity given to that character. And I don't say that as a knock to Friday the 13th, because that's just not what that movie is doing. But I think it is explored a little more in Scream. Mm-hmm. And then I also wrote The Haunting of Bly Manor, because that's, oh, the, God, that season is so good. I was
1: and, sobbing, sobbing
2: oh, for the last two episodes. Like, just... Me too. I haven't watched oh, a God. Of it
1: yet, Oh, my yeah. so. God.
2: Like, ugly crying. Yes. like, <laughs> just God, like uh, <laughs> there is... <laughs> I know there's a song that plays in the final minutes and it just one brought back like so many middle school memories and two like, Oh my God. Like Mm -hmm. I, I lost it. Um, Mm -hmm. But that this season really is exploring grief and yeah. losing loved ones and just the way that that affects you, and like it, really interestingly wanting to reminisce about those loved ones and like what that does to you and how long you can stay there. And It's just really interesting and mm-hmm. fantastic. I think so that's a really out. good,
1: really good comparison, actually. Now that I think mm-hmm. about it, yeah, it's, it's so good. Oh, I'm gonna
2: cry now. Um, do we see this in any other movies? Uh, Laura, do you have? Any you want to
1: mention? Yeah, so I had two that I sort of thought of, and I don't know that either are a perfect fit, but they were what popped into my mind. And one of them is it's not so much a horror movie as it is a thriller, but I think it definitely is on the cusp. Um, it's called Blue Ruin, and it examines the way that grief can turn to a need for revenge and that the mm. revenge poisons the Avenger. Uh, it's a huh. real, like, violence, begetting violence kind of theme. It's also just a really excellent movie um, that mm. I highly recommend. Uh, and then there's also sort of Shades of Carrie as well. Um, mm. It may be a bit of a stretch, but there's the, some of the mother-child dynamic I'm thinking about and, like, you know, just, just the complicated parent-child relationship um, Mm -hmm. with us and also with like a slighted party snapping and then killing everyone. I I would argue that the kids in Carrie were probably a little bit more deserving than the kids in Friday the 13th. But I do feel like there's some vibe about um, like Carrie and Jason maybe could go on a date and, like, hang out and, and really connect <laughs> with each other and maybe move on, yep. you know, uh, mm-hmm. from all the killing. But, yeah. yeah. I've watched that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, now I want well, to write that. <laughs> I know.
0: Yeah, I mean, Victor Miller, he said, like, he's directly, like, we got to rip off the Carrie ending. Mm, yeah. that's Like, that oh, that's literally right. is where the ending came from. So yeah. it's interesting to make that comparison. Mm-hmm. It
2: is. Yeah, Mike, do you have any you want to mention?
0: I mean, like, these are very on the nose, but, like, The Mutilator, <laughs> which... Um,
2: i'm sorry i don't want to laugh. <laughs> again
0: right it's a it starts with um a boy accidentally shoots his mother oh. um with a shotgun and 30 years later like the dad he, they go back to like the beach cottage and the dad kills off all the friends one by one mm. basically that would be one of them um crop you know I'm thinking of like the burning mm-hmm. uh in terms of getting revenge because you know poor Cropsy has been <laughs> burned by uh these children and he's like exacting revenge at a camp at a campground like years and years later oh so that made me think
1: of another pretty much another like, one sorry go ahead
0: no fierce you, i I think I'm struggling to find more it just but.
1: made me think when you said crabs the whole Cropsy thing it made me think of pumpkinhead with Lance Henriksen, mm-hmm. you know, his son gets run over by these these nasty teens that are like drag racing motorcycles, and then he goes and seeks revenge and evokes the Pumpkinhead monster and yada, 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 mm-hmm. yada, yada, a yada, mm-hmm.
2: bunch of people die. Lance Henriksen is in Pumpkinhead? Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. the, no he's the
1: dad, the grieving dad in the
2: first Pumpkinhead. I have recently learned that I've avoided a lot of B movies that I need to start watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, for a while, I think I was a little bit of a horror snob and-
1: no uh, B movies I mean I love watching B movies trash cinema and B movies are like my favorite shit but also I mean Pumpkinhead mm. I don't actually love but I think it's a really interesting it has a lot of really good elements and, and Lance Hendrickson in that movie could get it like he is fine yeah. as hell in that movie Whew.
2: I he's 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 a very interesting hot person too he's like the kind
1: of hot that I like where he's like a little a really? fucked, little fucked up looking like Weather. yeah like I like a yeah. weather-beaten man mm,
2: just goodness. if anyone was listening <laughs> if you are weather-beaten <laughs> let us know um well so let's move now into um other mental health topics we see here We're not going to go really in depth with them, but we want to identify these kinds of things when we see them come up. I just don't like letting things go by without mentioning them at least because I think it starts to normalize mental health and mental illness and kind of draw attention to the fact that it really is all around us and everybody is kind of on a spectrum of where they are mentally, you know? So I think some of the ones that I saw trauma, Alice would most likely develop PTSD from this event. Um, and I think that's kind of goes with the final girl territory, you know? Um, which might be a longer discussion for another day because I've got a lot of thoughts about that. Um, but we and we already mentioned the appropriation of the headdress and the song with Ned. I also want to mention this is not necessarily a mental health topic, but that snake actually died, and that is really sad to oh, me. Apparently, that's some cannibal Holocaust shit. I know. Yeah. Apparently, the owner didn't know it was going to happen and was like on oh, set no. crying. And I oh, know. No. It's kind of like I hate thinking about it because it's kind of like this little mar of this movie that Mm -hmm. I love so much. But Mm -hmm. and we don't have to really talk about it anymore, but I just wanted to mention it. But we also we have a character whose name is Crazy Ralph. And so I think he's he's fascinating. And I said that I love him, I think, more because that's that's where the camp to me really is in this movie you know you're doomed i like you're watching doomed. Him.
0: i love i love watching him ride a bike
1: yeah i, I just, know <laughs> they're all fucked i'm gonna pedal away now
2: and yeah, yeah. and I he's know,
0: married and... apparently crazy ralph is married
2: i mean have you seen him who's not gonna want that
0: <laughs> there's just there's someone out there for everybody i mean yeah. they're really
2: oh. um you think he just stands in the pantry at home until his wife oh is, gets Yeah, hungry. she gets home and he comes bursts out and goes you're doomed and she's like Ralph just go to bed god damn right. it <laughs> This was the first time I noticed him saying he's a messenger of god mm-hmm. and I think that there's like there there's some delusion there there's some stalking and inappropriate behavior like we've kind of kicked around having Patreon episodes where we diagnose a character. And I think Crazy Ralph might be kind of an interesting one to talk about and kind of piece apart what, what's going on in that, that Crazy Ralph head well, did,
0: did Ralph see something in 1958? Yes.
2: That would...
1: That's my you know. question is, yeah. Like, mm. was he somehow uh, party to this at an earlier point? And that's why he's so fixated on it.
2: Mm. I hadn't thought about that. I just thought he was kind of local kook, you know? That's Could go like, either way. Yeah. But it, anyways, I... Love crazy Ralph. Um, Is there anything else that we that we see that we want to mention?
1: i already called out dissociative identity uh, dissociative identity disorder so i won't go into that again but i also i wanted to pull call you know call it a little bit and this may be an uh, an issue with the movie aging and social norms having changed a bit but Mm -hmm. uh and it's not even necessarily a psychological issue but unwanted male attention um Mm -hmm. and just the more of the way that it impacts the female characters dudes are just throughout the film kind of making women uncomfortable um there's the line yeah. that the the truck driver says to um annie annie that are all the girls up there pretty as you and she goes i don't know and it's just like such a like deflection of like please stop talking about this and then mm-hmm. uh do you then uh, when the, the kids are driving up the the horny one says do you think I'll, uh, you'll be the only gorgeous woman at the camp and they're just like oh yeah yeah. and then and then the the older, guy that is trying to rehab the camp says to Alice like Steve Christie. Yeah, mm-hmm. he goes you're very talented Alice and very pretty and kind of like strokes her hair mm-hmm. and she's kind of like, mm, "I don't know, dude." Like, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's just a theme that I noticed and again it's the kind of thing I think audiences in 1980 probably wouldn't have blinked at because that was just how, you know, men spoke to women and women are socialized to just kind of be like ah! but like so it right. really it bothers me a bit when I watch it. Steve yeah.
0: Christie is one of the all-time Great creeper yes, characters totally. in a movie. Hmm. He looks like a young David Cross, um, <laughs> and his relationship with Alice, as it were, is like because she is so not into him and yeah. is so just like, please leave me alone. Like giving him enough attention so she won't he won't, she won't get fired, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but also like. Every time he comes around, she's praying that the earth will open up and just swallow her up
1: to avoid
0: having to speak to him. And he is so unaware of anything. And then when he goes to like the diner, he's like kind of the hot shit in the diner. Totally, Mm -hmm. And that's what gives
1: him this like unwarranted confidence to kind of like mm -hmm. sexually harass his younger female employee who may not even be 18 years old. I'm not sure how old Alice Mm -hmm. is exactly supposed to be, but yeah, it's definitely like if there was an HR at Camp Crystal Lake, this would constitute a hostile work environment. (laughs) Yeah. I
0: would say if Steve Christie were to survive the events of the first movie, Within five years, he would no longer be allowed to live within a thousand feet of
1: a school. (laughs) Yes, I very much can see that happening.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and it kind of like ties back into Crazy Ralph, too, because I think there's just kind of a disregard for female boundaries. Yes, I think that's what I'm
1: picking up on here is it feels like everyone is encroaching on their their personal space. and and Yeah, totally.
2: And I think you're right. I think that's really just indicative of the the time period. I don't necessarily feel any kind of like malintent in this movie. But but again, it is something that I like calling out. And so I'm glad you put that in there because it's something that you we're now able to say this makes me feel weird, whereas Mm -hmm. we weren't really able to say that. Because we might have gotten fired, you know?
0: <laughs> I'm going to defend Crazy Ralph here because I don't think it's so much about encroaching on female boundaries as much as like females happen to be in the room when he bursts out of the pantry. Yeah, like, I agree. Yeah. I, 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 I don't get a nothing, creeper ver- yeah. vibe from Ralph. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. nothing sexual about, well, I might be turned a lot, on a little bit by Ralph in that bowler hat or Oh, whatever. you've seen yeah, how he yeah, rides but, uh, a, a bike,
2: His guys. little
1: fedora. You're saying you've been, yeah, so saying you've fedora, been hit by, it. you've been Ooh. struck by a smooth criminal.
0: <laughs> I, I've been... <laughs> I might be crazy for Crazy Ralph, but I, I don't think that he's necessarily crazy. trying to creep on women so no, much I as agree. like that just happens to be
1: who's yes. in the room. Yes, that I just point. think that within the context of the film, there seems like there's this recurring theme of
2: girls kind of being like, oh, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. And oh, I mean, I it could yeah. be like the filmmaker positioning that Alice is the person to open that boundary or mm-hmm. that pantry too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. And I don't know necessarily think we need to dig too deep into that because I think moreover, it's just... The time period, but but yeah, I do, I do like mentioning that because you know we got to stop it. <laughs> Please um, stop. Please stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, read the room, dudes out there. I keep wanting to not say guys, but I'm actually talking to guys in that moment. Specifically so it's at this moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So read the room, guys. I can officially say that. Okay. Is there anything else we want to mention? Oh, Mike, I didn't ask you. Is there anything you see? Um.
0: I think we've covered it. I mean, obviously with Jason, the intellectual disabilities mm, which
2: mm-hmm.
0: are are present and uh, present there. But no, mm-hmm. I mean, that really kind of kind of really covers it okay. overall. So. Um,
2: so now let's move into our uplifting moment.
0: <laughs>
2: I love adding a uh, singing over the heart. It just makes me so dumbly happy every time. Okay. So this is a time for us to share some of the things we've been doing that make us feel good or help us when we're feeling bad. And uh, we think it's especially important when we're talking about such a heavy topic. We really kind of want to leave you feeling a a little bit better, especially if you're listening to this in the morning and you've got your day ahead of you, because we've talked about some hard stuff in this episode. Um, Remember, there's no right way to do self-care. What works for us may not work for you, and not everything is going to work 100% of the time. Um, But Again, we think it's important to normalize needing these kind of things. And one of the things I've been struck by pretty recently was kind of what the idea of mental health is. And I posted this to our stories that mental health is not everything is happy and everything's going well and you never feel sad. What mental health is, is understanding that those, you are going to have those waves of emotion that come and developing the skills and the strategies and the tools to deal with that. And so I think that's a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about self-care and coping techniques is I know that I can't control everything. So I know there are going to be times I'm not happy. What do I do when I'm not happy? You know, and I even say happy like that feels like an oversimplified term, too. You know, it's just it's just complicated. So does anyone have anything they want to share?
1: Um, I just wanted to make a note to myself to get back to using my anxiety journal this week. Uh, I've been sort of slipping and sliding on that a little bit. But as we near the election, which by the time this airs, we'll <laughs> happened um (laughs) my anxiety is really just spiking spiking like a volleyball in summer and my sleep is definitely getting worse um uh, on the plus side i have started working out a bit again now that my back isn't killing me just taking it easy um doing stretching a little bit of cardio taking extra walks and that's really been a good outlet for my nervous energy so it's kind of a a double-edged sword there for me this
2: week Hmm. mike what about you so um
0: it's been a little bit better. Like, I've definitely been taking advantage of the fall, like, more hikes in the woods with the dog mm-hmm. uh, over the weekend. Just, like, you know, a couple-mile hikes for, like, a 45 minutes or an hour. Just kind of going through the woods and enjoying, like... This, to me, is, like, the best time of year weather-wise where it's nice and cool, but I can, you know, just throw in an extra layer and feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And just enjoying, like, being outside right mm-hmm. now. Uh, over the weekend... We had two of my favorite people in the world come over to visit for like a socially distanced outdoor movie night mm-hmm. where we like set up the outdoor projector, some little speakers with it, threw on a movie and just chilled and we pretty much talked over the movie. But it was just nice to be around people mm-hmm. um, taking advantage of the last time we did the same thing. We did like Sleepy Hollow in the backyard. Oh. It's, yeah, it's a little bit cold out, but like, you know, it's just nice to do those things. Mm-hmm um so trying to take advantage of that and um voted you know Yay. so which is good and i encourage everybody to go out well
1: i'm sorry <laughs>
0: at this point it would be <laughs> yeah. at this point but i will say this like if the election turns out like we hope it will that's not the end of the process yeah. no it's not and i'm going to encourage anyone listen especially If you're someone that's a bit younger and feels like you are taken for granted by, I'm going to say the Democratic Party, that your vote is a given, Mm -hmm. and I can understand that frustration, Mm -hmm. stay engaged. Mm -hmm. If you are a Green Party supporter, don't just turn out every four years and vote green and then never do anything. Mm -hmm. Run for local office in your town. Go to your local meeting. Start a chapter if you have to. But stay engaged, Mm -hmm. because hopefully we're going to wake up on November 4th to a different landscape. (sighs) But the problems that we face as a country, they're not going away. Hell no.
1: They've they've done been here, and they're going to continue being here. And the hope is, I mean, not to steal your speech, but Mm -hmm. if we can get Biden in there, if we can get the Senate flipped, then we put the Mm -hmm. pressure on. We, there yeah. is no no way right. to apply pressure to a system, uh, you know, a, a, a government that is full of enemies mm-hmm. who don't give a fuck mm-hmm. about you and want you to die. But if mm-hmm. there's, you know, these imperfect figures uh, who are at least somewhat open to hearing from us, that's that's the goal. And then we have to put the pressure on yeah. and not relent.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. we can't say oh it's over and done because that's that's how we wind up back here. Yeah, so, exactly. Sooner I just, or later.
1: I just want to go to brunch. I just like, want to go to brunch. No, I
2: think we're kind of living through what happens when we check out. Exactly. You know, and we stop, Mm -hmm. we take our eye off the ball because the people who want to take advantage of us don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't take the day off. Um,
0: So run for school board, run for board of health, run for like the trustees of your local library. Do something to stay engaged in the process and kind of build a. Better coalition. Yeah. Don't just check out for the next four years. Yeah,
2: And I want to say, because I I kind of want to correct myself, because I said, don't take a day off. Take a day off. (laughs) Like, take (laughs) a day and not think about this for a while. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking about this every day for the last four years. And Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. am ready to just not think about it. Just don't, just take that break and then come back. Yes, recharge Mm -hmm. your
1: batteries and then come back into fucking... I don't, I yeah, don't want to know what, what I'm putting batteries in right now, but yeah. I'm going to leave, right. I'm going to leave the analogy hanging.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but How will we ever know? Um, one of the things that I've been thinking that I've been doing recently, and I, I was kind of struggling to think about something to share because I, I've been having one of the weeks, Mike, that you were talking about last week where I was just like, I, I don't know what to do right now. And I kind of just found myself mentally flailing around. Um, But one of the things that I've noticed myself doing, and it is a product of, I think, a couple of years of therapy now, is when I catch myself using language that shames me or like using language that is mean about myself. Like, Oh, the dumb thing that I did, or this is totally stupid, but I did like, I'm still saying that stuff, but I catch it. And I say like, Mm -hmm. Oh, it's like, listen to this dumb thing I did. I don't think that's a fair way to say it, but here's the thing, you know? And I'm not quite to the point where I don't think about it in those terms yet because like a lot of my anxiety, I think manifests into like, turning in on myself and really just like thinking mm-hmm. terrible things about myself so it still like comes out but I've really been trying to catch it and verbalize the fact that that's a not not a kind way to talk about myself. Right. Um like one of the things I've caught I've been doing a lot in therapy is apologizing for just kind of pulling everything out and laying it in the session, you know, and like, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm all over the place today. And she's like, no, no, no. That's what this is for this right. time. It's okay for that. And so now I'm saying, I know I'm not supposed to be po- apologizing, but I'm just going to do it right now and then get over it. And, and so it's <laughs> I've like, been
1: there.
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, there really is something like we were talking about when we were talking about the grief tree, um, the grieving tree, like using your body to like express that because your voice is part of your body and it's not just living in my head anymore. It's coming out in a way. And I think that's, that's kind of helped me. And I think it's down the road to um, maybe changing the thought process before I say the negative mm-hmm. thing. Um, and the other thing, I'm not ready to talk about this yet, but I've been talking to my therapist and I think we're going to start doing something called brain spotting, which I'm. it's, have you heard of that, Mike? Yeah, it's related to EMDR. I yep. think it's it's kind of, uh, I think it's a little less structured, is the way she was saying, but I haven't started it yet. But I'm really excited about it. And it, I think it's. It
0: combines ahead. the things with e, of EMDR, but there's a more cognitive approach to it, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is um, something I've looked into doing with like a client that experienced significant trauma. Right. Um But I ended up referring him elsewhere. I think we hit a plateau. Um, But it's something I would definitely. Yeah, that's very cool.
2: So maybe stay tuned for some um, updates on that. And what it is, my cursory understanding of it is where your eyes move kind of activates parts of your brain. Mm -hmm. So when you find your eye drifting to freeze there and it kind of allows you to process that emotion. Um, again, I- I'll keep you updated on how this goes, but I'm really excited to kind of try try this thing, especially as a person who's kind of been afraid of EMDR. Like mm-hmm. this seems like an easier approach. And speaking of EMDR, I also want to call out a podcast called um, Temporary Circumstances. They talk about mental health Um, And they just they just started their second season and their episode is on EMDR. So if you're curious to know kind of a a more deep dive into that, check out their episode. Um, Yeah. So as we wrap up, um, let's talk about our homework question for this episode. Uh, We really want this to be a conversation and we want to know what you think. So our question for today, and we kind of, we just, I probably just cut out when we talked about this, but um, the question that would come to my mind is like, what are you grieving? But I, that's a really heavy question. Um, So our question is going to be, tell us about your experiences at camp. Like, fun um embarrassing like what was it like We creepy wanna hear counselors about- yeah. any yes <laughs> or cute counselors did you kiss under the stars you know we want to know but also if you feel comfortable talking about grief in any way we want to hear about that too we just don't want to make you feel like you can't participate in this because it is too A raw too, or too, too painful. much yeah 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 um but we always want to hear about that if you feel comfortable with it um And so you can share your answers with us on social media, which is another reason that we didn't make that our homework question, because that's just a real hard question to put on Twitter. Um, so you can share your answers with us on social media by following us at psychoapod on Instagram and Twitter, or you can join one of our two Facebook groups, the psychoanalysis podcast support group. That's where you'll find the homework question posts, discussion threads, and questions of the day. And you're, feel free to post in that group as well. I'm starting to see more people like post their own questions or their own things that they want to talk about, which I think is great. Um, you can also join the psychoanalysis, a horror therapy family group that is list Created. Both groups are private and moderated and just filled with some amazing and kind and supportive people. Um, so that's a place to share your thoughts and answers with a little more privacy. Um, and you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share with us totally privately. Um, So we are going to have another episode this month exploring grief. We are going to look at The Invitation, and that's Karen Kusama, is that right? Karen Kusama, yeah. Um, So, yeah, we're going to-
0: one yeah. of my favorite movies of the past 10 years.
2: Really? I Oh, I
0: love this movie.
2: <laughs> I'm interested to look at it again. Um, but, so, but before that, we are going to have another comfort horror episode. And I am really loving these. Um, it's so much fun to talk about the horror movies that we kind of see as self-care. And it's really fascinating to me to see... How we respond to these movies and mm-hmm. like what makes us comforted. Because there are some that we've talked about in doing in future episodes that really upset me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm interested to find out why this is a comfort for someone else, you know? Mm-hmm. So the next movie that we are going to be watching on a comfort horror episode is Poltergeist. Yay! I'm so excited. Um, Because this is one that I've watched a lot over the years, and I'm really excited to revisit it. And we are going to be joined by a guest for that episode.
0: So we're going to be joined by the editor-in-chief and founder of the site Grumpire. Uh, We're going to be joined by Elby. So she's going to be coming on like to discuss like why poltergeist is such a gives her such a warm and fuzzy (laughs) overall. So definitely fascinated to talk to her. Uh, it's a great site, Grumpire, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of great critical, critical analysis going on over there. Um, there's also the Grumpire podcast. So, um, should be a really fun conversation.
2: I'm really excited. I, I, yeah, and and she picked this movie also. So. Yes,
0: yeah. We're, you know, we're not, we do the comfort horror and our <laughs> guests come on. We're like, we're going to assign you this movie to do, even if you may <laughs> right. not uh, enjoy it. <laughs> even if you don't find the, comfort
2: you in will it. We'll be at comforted all. by yeah. this. Exactly. Yeah, we we get, commend it. We get the
0: <laughs> discomfort. Um, so. We could do
2: some discomfort episodes. Oh, I have yes. thought about maybe like, I've been too afraid to watch this movie like challenge kind of episode. Mm-hmm. That could be maybe, interesting. <laughs> yeah, maybe when when I'm on a little more mental. Yeah, s- if things
1: if things go well, if the trajectory of the next few months is somewhat upward, we can consider that. <laughs> right,
2: right. But that would be fun. So we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. Um, there are tons of other amazing pods, including the Losers Club and Halloweenies. So make sure you check them out. We can uh, You can find them all at consequenceofsound.com, along with tons of writing and reviews about pop culture and just lots of really cool stuff. Mike, where can we find you online?
0: All right. Well, if you liked me talking about Friday the 13th on this episode... <laughs> About a week from now, you'll hear me guest on Halloweenies as we talk about, um, part nine, Jason goes to hell, which (laughs) was a really fun conversation. And it's my first time guesting on that show. You can find me on my other podcast, the pod and the pendulum along with Jerry Smith, where we typically cover horror movie franchises, um, I am not sure by the time this I think we'll be wrapping up the Friday the 13th series by the time this comes up. So I think we're going to have a probably a commentary for Freddy versus Jason because we did two parts on that when we covered the Friday the 13th franchise. So I think what we'll do is like a fan commentary for that and then we'll be tackling the remake and then we have like a bonus episode where we have like I think uh, a few Q and A's with like cast members from the um, series overall to oh, kind of cool. give herself a little break before we jump into, I believe urban legend. <gasps> um,
2: oh, that's fun. Yeah. I love urban legend. So, <laughs> and I just want to uh, ask, did you say you're, you're about to finish Friday the 13th or are we're you? We're
0: finishing the nightmare on Elm street
2: series. Okay, that's what but
0: I... like there's some overlap there. Cause like oh. Freddie versus Jason, belongs to, but Bo- we already covered that uh, it two episodes back when we <laughs> <laughs> covered Friday the th- We did like a all the st- movies that weren't made and that's like <laughs> a 90 minute episode and then we talk about the movie that was made. <laughs> um, find me over at Mike underscore Snoonian and yeah that's about it.
1: Laura, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at underalls like the <laughs> <laughs> Pair of big old boxer shorts covered in smiley faces peeking mm. above the waist of your Genko pants. Nice, uh, I like it. <laughs> I, I, don't, I just came up with that. This yeah, with the chain.
0: Very specific.
1: Your Vans, your candy bracelets, uh, mm-hmm. the underalls, and on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram, but you know, a little bit down these days.
2: You know, <laughs>
1: old gray mare. She ain't what she used to be. I I also occasionally (laughs) guest on uh,
2: Losers Club and Halloweenies as well. So check me out, babies. Um and I actually was just on the most recent episode of Halloweenies talking about depending on when this lands although time means nothing anymore. Yeah, time matters um, <laughs> Exactly. Um yeah, fuck time. <laughs> uh, fuck time. <laughs> 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 um I was just on an episode talking about Jason Takes Manhattan. So to hear me talk more about um Friday the 13th franchise and I also am um you can find me on The Loser's Club. Ow. I just banged my hand on the table. (laughs) that it's fine. This hand, like, man, this hand has been through the ringer this year. I know. Um, But you can find me on social media at jimferatu with two N's and occasionally writing some stuff on Consequence of Sound. Um, And that's me. So wrapping up, I want to thank you for listening and joining us for this episode. I know it's a hard subject to talk about, but I think it's a really important one, especially now. Um, Please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know what you think or how you feel. And I'm really happy with how this episode went. I wasn't quite sure what we were going to say about it. And I think, like, way to go, Mike. I think you really, like, brought a lot of insight to this movie that I really love. Totally. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of this conversation that we've had. Yay, so yay,
0: yay, Mike. yay. Um, so here I am so smart. <laughs> S-M-R-T. S-M-R-T. <laughs>
2: um, so here we are again, it's come to this, the sign off. <laughs> um, and I'm, I think I'm getting better, but, uh, especially since I scripted all of this out and now I just feel like a weirdo. Um, but so we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves and we're, all and we're all out of, of bubblegum. Bubble <laughs> okay, so Woo. now I'm so in my head that I just freak out and just launch into it. <laughs> I think <laughs> it was getting serious. better. I think that was good. I That's think we're true. doing good. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll get there. It <laughs> <laughs> <right>. was better. <laughs> Bye, Bye everyone. <laughs> nice